Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Carol G. Juan Gabriel. Christina Aguilera. What do these three have in common? You mean apart from impeccable style, chart-topping canciones, and drama? Facts, yes, all of the above are correct. But most importantly, they're some of the biggest Latin icons in the world. And they're just a few of the game-changing Latin stars we're covering in Becoming an Icon Season 2. Listen to Becoming an Icon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is John Hall, musician, politician, ski instructor. John, good to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Bob. Good to be here. Okay, you have a long history in political causes, no nukes, things on the local level in Saugerties, also a member of Congress for four years. Given today's landscape, are you optimistic or pessimistic? In between, uh, I think there's reason for optimism. There's also reason for pessimism, but I, I fall on the optimistic side because I believe when it comes down to it, people, when they understand the stakes, will do the right thing. And especially, I believe that uh, parents and grandparents will want to see their kids and grandkids have a livable world to grow up in and to maybe have kids themselves and grandkids themselves. And so that's that's kind of what's at stake in terms of the environment and climate change, which is... Uh, Maybe the most important thing, in my opinion, right now. Okay, speaking of climate change, when while we're doing this, it hasn't been that long ago that the UN released their climate report. It said, we can never get back to where we once were, and we have to take action. Needless to say, there are people who believe this, and there are people who are dragging their feet. How will we literally make progress? Because if we wait for long enough for everybody to wake up, might that be squandering too many years? Well, a lot of years have been squandered already, but I think that people are getting their own ox gourd. That's usually what happens with, with anything political or in terms of activism, community, organizing, whatever. I, when I first got into politics, it was at the local level. My next-door neighbor started crushing 100 junk cars on his lawn one Sunday summer morning when I was having coffee and the windows were open. This is before you needed air conditioning in the Woodstock, New York area. Everybody just had their windows open and got screens and cross ventilation, and that was cool enough. But um, but anyway, I you know went and talked to my neighbor, and he was kind of upset that I had an opinion about what he was doing on his property, even though it was in violation of the state junkyard ordinance. And so I organized a bunch of people to uh, to stop it and to, uh, 
you know, he had to comply with state law. And it was the beginning of my figuring out that I could exercise that, that political muscle. It starts out really as just a, just an individual citizenship muscle. But it's kind of intoxicating when you figure out you can actually change things in your neighborhood or in your town. And that it whets your appetite for trying to have more effect on things you care about. So, so I think people who are being flooded, people who are having their houses burned and losing their life savings that was in their property, people who are looking at, uh, you know, hurricanes and I mean, the heat waves that are going on right now, the deaths, uh, heat is one of the most deadly uh, kinds of extreme weather. I think more people die from extreme heat than any other weather phenomena already. And uh, right now from the Northwest United States and British Columbia to New England, across the entire top tier of the states, it's a uh, top tier of the states, it's a heat wave. And, uh, you know, not only is uh, is Turkey and our Turkey and Greece burning, but Siberia and Russia has uh, more acreage burning right now than all the other fires in the world combined, including California and Oregon and Washington. And it's just, uh, it's odd, starting to get obvious even to people who weren't thinking about it. Okay. What do you believe the steps and in what order we should take to ameliorate this problem? Well, you know, we need to make a transition off of uh, fossil fuels to renewable energy and to storage, but even more so to conservation. Uh, Any kilowatt that you save is cheaper and has less environmental impact, environmental impact than a new one that you, that you generate. Whether you're generating with with solar or wind or or coal or oil, it's it's still it's faster and cheaper and less environmentally impactful to not use that in the first place. So I'm trying to really make an effort to like when I leave home, have everything on a power strip and turn it off, so my electronics don't stay on when I'm out of the house or when I'm gone for the weekend or on the road or what have you. I'm uh, driving the most efficient car that I can drive that meets my needs. And I'm trying to um, you keep the air conditioning a little warmer in the summer and the heat a little bit cooler in the winter so that I use, personally, I use less energy. And I'm eating a, eating a lot less meat than I used to because the rainforest in Brazil is being cut down for, uh, uh, for grazing cattle, for meat, for McDonald's and other fast food restaurants and, and stores and so on. And so you can vote with your dollars. And that's what, the way I think about it for things that have less of a, a carbon emission footprint. Okay. What kind of car do you drive? I'm driving a, a Honda plug-in hybrid, a Clarity plug-in. It gets 48 miles on all battery. So when I'm driving around town, you know, I, I can go to the bank, the post office, the supermarket, go to the other side of town, visit, you know, visit friends, come back. You know, I basically don't use any gasoline. I plug it in overnight and it charges up and when I go out of town, I use gasoline on the highway. And it, even then, it gets 42 miles per gallon as a hybrid. Uh, this car, you know, I, it was, I wouldn't recommend this for anybody in terms of financing. It went up in 40, I think it was 43 grand. I mean, I'm not saying this to brag or whatever about it. It's just that what, it's not that much more expensive than a lot of other vehicles uh, nowadays, especially when you consider how much less gasoline you have to buy. Okay, let's talk about finances just for a second since you bring that up. A, who owns your publishing catalog? Uh, most of it is um, 
Well, Johanna, my my first wife and co-writer, and I own um, half of it. Um, the uh, publishing that what they split it in the business into the writer's share, which is fifty percent, and the publishing share, which is fifty percent. We've had a co-publishing deal with Sony. It was EMI before they were bought by Sony. Every uh, every corporation gets conglomerated and you know acquired by another one sooner or later. Same thing in the music business, but but uh, so you know Sony owns a good chunk of it, and Johanna and I own the rest of our of our best known songs. And then there are some songs before that that I owned by a different publisher I won't mention that I never see statements on or, you know, uh, not, a, not a penny from. And then there's some newer songs that I wrote that I still own the writing and the publishing on myself. So uh, that's a complicated answer. but Yeah, but since some of these songs are of a certain age that they're reversion rights, have you gotten the total right back? I know Todd Rung, when he gets it back and then sells it back, but have you hit the reversion point and tried to get the full rights back? I believe that we fell uh, in between. We didn't, we weren't aware of that and weren't hip to it soon enough to do something about it, given the years that these songs were written and, uh, and copyrighted. So, uh, no, we haven't gotten it back, but I can't complain. You know, I've had a career writing songs and playing music and, and that's really all I ever wanted. Okay. Is, I mean, there are people who've only written one hit song who can live off that money for the rest of their lives. Still, the one is ubiquitous. And of course, Dance With Me and some of these other Orleans songs, some of which you wrote, some of which you didn't. Is there enough money to earn a living just from the songwriting? Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, Johanna, the, the first song we ever wrote was called Half Moon. We wrote it for Janis Joplin. She asked us to write it for her. And that's a long story, which I don't know if you want to hear. But No, but, I definitely uh, want to hear. Tell it. Well, Johanna was a journalist for the Village Voice before we met and got married and started working together. And she wrote uh, a good review of Janice's Cosmic Blues album, the first record after she left Big Brother and the Holding Company. Most of the critics thought that she had abandoned her brothers in the commune and she should go back to San Francisco and be with Big Brother and and Johanna was one of a few writers who said, this is a great album, and it's, it's easy to see why she wanted to move on and have horns in the band and have a different level of uh, musicianship and, and production and so on. So, so uh, Janice asked for an interview with Johanna, and the publicist set it up, and, and she left, Johanna left to go take a bus across town from our place on the Lower East Side to a... Uh, uh, to a Greek restaurant on the west side of Manhattan. And and I was sitting home playing the guitar. And you know, an hour or two later, the door opened and in came Johanna with Janis Joplin behind her. And she was already a big star. I, I uh, The first thing I thought was, I wish I'd have changed the cat box. But, <laughs> uh, but you know, I, I, I played her some songs. We sat around. It was before Christmas. We sang blues versions of Oh, little town of Bethlehem and other Christmas carols. And, and uh, we're just having fun. And I played her a couple songs that I had written the music and the lyrics for. And she said, I like the music, but the lyrics sound like a young man wrote them. And I said, well, that's me. I was 22 at the time, I think. And uh, she said to Johanna, you're a woman. You're a writer. Why don't you two write me a song? And 
And uh, so we wrote this song, Half Moon. Johanna gave me the lyric on the back of an envelope, which is something she's prone to doing. Happened was still the one, too. But uh, but anyway, it's, uh, you know, it's a good poetic image-laden um, lyric. And I had a guitar lick that came off of a song I wrote for an off-Broadway show that ran in Philadelphia for previews and never made it to New York. And, and so I lifted the guitar lick from that and built the song around it. And Half Moon was, uh, you know, Janice loved it, rehearsed it with her band, did it on the Pearl album. It was the B-side of me and Bobby McGee. And then it was recorded by The Fifth Dimension at Chaka Khan. And, and James Brown did an organ instrumental version of it and so on. And that song maybe, you know, could have supported us. I mean, it did for years because that was the first hit we had. So it's, uh, you know, we've been fortunate to have hits by Millie Jackson and The Times and, and uh, you know, various other artists as well as, uh, as by Orleans. So, you know, writing has really been my job for a long time. Okay, prior to Janis Joplin's uh, saying that Johanna should write, did she write? Did you write songs together or was that the no, advent of that? That was the first one. Johanna says it's like bowling a strike your first time out and then you have to roll gutter balls while you figure out how to get the ball back up on the, on the alley and in the strike zone. And we wrote some lousy songs after that because, you know, it was luck of the draw. But we've gotten a lot better at it. Now we basically don't finish a song if it's not that good. Oh, so you still write songs together? We just wrote a song together for this record, actually, uh, now more than ever. I'm reclaiming my time. It's the first song that Joanne and I have written together in a couple of decades. Uh, after we divorced, it was a little difficult. It's just a very intimate thing, writing songs with somebody, especially if you do it a lot. It, uh, there's a lot of talk and a lot of uh, soul-bearing that goes into getting to a place where you can write a soul-bearing song. And uh, that's what I'm interested in. I was a fan of Jackson Browns and and uh, Joni Mitchells and, you know, as, as well as the Beatles and all the Motown people and Beach Boys and so on and so forth. But the songs that really move me are the ones where somebody talks about what's what they're really feeling. So that's kind of something that, you know, when you work with an underwriter, you, you bare your soul a little bit. So how do you get yourself into that place? I guess trying to be self-aware and trying to write with people that make you comfortable enough that you don't have to say, this is embarrassing, but what do you think of this? Or this is really stupid, but here's a direction. I mean, a lot of times uh, one has to start with something pretty common to write a song and then substitute. It's kind of like chord substitutions in music. Musicians, jazz musicians, especially like to play a blues and then substitute for each chord. They'll substitute a whole bunch of other chords that resolve at that chord. Uh, chord substitution is, is a big thing. And in lyrics, you can substitute too. I think the most famous one uh, that, that I heard of anyway is Paul McCartney said when he was writing yesterday, the dummy lyric was scrambled eggs. Today for breakfast, I had scrambled eggs. You know, and he had the, the verse and the melody written out with that as a placeholder, and then he substituted lyrics until he got the song yesterday. And uh, and so, you know, you have to be able to do that. And sometimes when you're writing with someone else, you have to be able to say, this isn't it, but how about this for a starting point? You know, and, uh, you know, it's a, it's an interesting process. I, I do write a couple of songs on my new record are, are written just by me, and a lot of them, basically all the rest of them, 
our collaborations with, with various people. So which do you prefer? What do you think gives you a better result? It depends on the song. Um, I like writing with other people, uh, but uh, I wrote the song Save the Monarch on this record myself, uh, by myself. And I also wrote the song Welcome Home uh, to a veteran, Vietnam veteran friend of mine. Um, that's the last song on the record. And I wrote that by myself. But everything else I collaborated with my best my best friend, John Paul Daniel, uh, with a songwriter I've written with uh, from Woodstock, Saugerties area in New York, uh, uh, Tad Richards is not just an artist or a sculptor or uh, uh, you know a poet, but he's a really good lyricist and uh, and teaches creative writing at Bard College and and um, I wrote the first track uh, I think of you with Sharon Vaughn, who uh, is a Hall of Fame songwriter with you know I don't know sixty probably sixty I think number one country hits and a bunch of pop hits as well. You know, she's just somebody that I met and, you know, asked, <laughs> asked if she'd go out for Okay, a let's break it down. If you're going to do collaboration, one, do you do it in the same room or you do it via email or other technical I ways? prefer doing it in the same room. Most writers do. But with Johanna, we wrote now more than ever on this new record. Uh, we started out sitting at the table together and writing and we had both been really careful. It was right at the beginning of the lockdown from the pandemic. And, um, or maybe it was like a week before. So we, we got to start on it. She had the idea of now more than ever, we've got to, we've got to uh, get together. And, and then, uh, it just took on a whole other thing about like, we have to stand together during this pandemic. We have to, uh, uh, we have to be able to uh, unite enough uh, and, and communicate well enough uh, to be. And it's it's speaking as a couple too. The song could be read as uh, somebody talking to their significant other, you know, uh, husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse. Um, it, but it also could be read as uh, as people in society, in a community, as different political parties talking to each other, as different countries talking together. That's, that's really what's going on now with the climate is, you know, countries are going to have to be able to talk to each other and, and listen as well as talk. And okay. Let's go back to the process. If you're writing in the same room, you need to make an appointment to do that. Right. Writing alone. So it's two part question. When you write alone, are you waiting for inspiration or you say, no, I'm sitting down at noon today and I'm not going to get up till six. I have something. <laughs> or sit down at six and get up at 10 or nine. whatever. But I don't yeah, know what I, your hours are. I do both. I do both. I, I have made and, you know, frequently do make an appointment to write appointment, meaning like, Hey, John Paul, let's, uh, let's go for a walk this morning and then go sit with our guitars and see what happens. Uh, sometimes it's a publisher making a date. You know, I've, I've had dates that, uh, my publisher made with, uh, you know, with another writer from another publishing company or from their same publishing company. So, but most of all, it's, it's, it's people I know who I ask. Uh, and in between, I'm always thinking about ideas and, and, uh, and writing them down or recording them or speaking them into a, a phone uh, or some kind of digital device. I, I, 
a chordal idea, a mel- melodic idea, or a lyrical idea, so that the next time I do have an appointment with somebody, I can come in with a start on something. It's much more fun writing with somebody who has that. So when I work with Sharon Vaughn, or you know, or usually with John Paul, or or uh, you know, most of the writers that Steve Warner, he and I wrote, uh, you know, we wrote a couple of songs together. We wrote this number one hit, "You Can Dream of Me," back in the '80s, and uh, a number of songs since then. And we wrote uh, this song, "Another Sunset," together, and it's on this new record, "Reclaiming My Time." And you know, I. I had the idea for that uh, chorus, and I had a date to write with Steve. We had made plans for me to come down to his house. And, and I showed up, and I had that melodic idea and just the concept of it. And and then he was totally involved in 50-50, uh, you know, partner on the, the rest of the song. And Okay, let's talk about the new album. Okay. What at this late date motivates you to make new music because generally speaking, there's not that much money in it. Well, I didn't start playing music to make money. I, when I was 12 years old, I strapped on a guitar and sat in my room, you know, playing a lot. And if it was an electric guitar, stood up and looked in the mirror while I was playing it and imagined that that weekend at the high school dance, I'd, I'd maybe attract some, some young ladies, but, I love the creative process and, uh, and I love music. I started, uh, you know, playing piano when I was four and it was entertainment to me. I just, uh, entertained myself by playing the Marine Sim with both hands. And my parents sent, sent me for piano lessons and, you know, I studied piano and French horn and taught myself guitar and, and, uh, bass and drums. And, and it's, uh, you know, so today I write for the same reasons I write because I love writing. And because I love I love music and seeing a, an idea take shape and become a thing that is external for me that I can play for people or record and send to somebody. It's a or now it's post online. So uh, that's the thrill in itself. If it makes money, great. Welcome to Five Hundred Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. 
the danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, there's a record company involved, Sunset Boulevard Records, which is not a major record company. How did it come to be that you were with them? Were you making something, you placed it, or they looked out, and who paid for the recording of the record? I paid for the recording of the record. Uh, Sunset Boulevard is a record that was founded by Glenn Fica, who's the manager of the band Orleans. And um, in fact, the last Orleans album, a double CD called No More Than You Can Handle, is on his label. And, um, you know, I've gotten to know him and trust him, and he He's built this label up so it has a lot of the people we work with that we do concerts with, like Firefall, Pure Prairie League, um, Atlanta Rhythm Section, The Babies. Uh, you know, these are all 70s, early 80s bands. They're kind of in his stable of of management artists. and um, But he's also putting their records out. And he also is licensing masters by Fast Domino and by Elmore James and by... Willie Nelson. He just put out a Willie Nelson record and worked directly with Willie. And I mean, it's like, it's, it's becoming a label that is not just a vanity label and, or a, a tiny indie. It's becoming a pretty, uh, visible, respected indie. And I think he's doing a real good job. It's, uh, you know, I put out, and Orleans has put out self released records. I had a little record label called Siren Songs Records that, uh, released, uh, couple albums of mine, uh, Love Doesn't Ask and Recovered, which was an acoustic album of me doing songs that other artists had, had covered, and I recovered them. Uh, and uh, I also put out a couple of Joan L. Mosser records on Siren Songs Records, and, you know, they they sold a little bit, and they, they helped, I think, helped her, and, and her fans and my fans bought them. Uh, they never got really the exposure they would have had if they'd been with a label like Sunset Boulevard. I've also been with the, you know, with Columbia and with Asylum Records, which is now part of the Warner Brothers Warner Music family. Uh, I've been with MGM Records. I've been with ABC Records. It's, uh, you know, they, all those companies had, especially at the time, they had a lot more money to throw behind and personnel to throw behind promoting a record than what we have now. But the world is different and uh, the business is different and, and and also the listening process. People can find anything now. If you want to find a John Hall record or an Orleans record, you can find it on YouTube or or uh, Apple or Amazon or Spotify, all the different streamers. So it really is it's possible 
so many young kids and young bands are doing this, making a record in their closet on a phone or on a laptop or an iPad or something and putting it out and and getting almost the same sort of wide band distribution that uh, that big artists have and big labels have. Okay, so you've recorded the new record. You've been working dates. How much of the new music do you play? Well, we're not doing any of my uh, Reclaiming My Time record yet because the shows that we do, we usually, uh, well, first of all, we've had one rehearsal since the end of, you know, since we started working in June after the pandemic let up a little bit, you know, everybody thought, okay, now we're going to be back to business as usual. But unfortunately, thanks to Delta variant, it's, it's not yet. And, uh, but we do, we do shows that range from an hour to maybe an hour and 15 or 20 minutes. And we have a lot of songs we have to do that people know Orleans for If they want to hear Love Takes Time, Still the One Dance With Me, Let There Be Music, Half Moon, uh, you know, various other songs. There's, sort of a, there's a list of them. And there's uh, a show that we've worked up that's pretty, pretty high-powered. Um, and we're working on a couple of my songs in any, any day now, you know, any concert now, we're going to start doing a couple of them. But... Uh, you know, it takes the songs in this record are not <clears throat> are not as simple as uh, as they might sound. At least not alone too long. And well, uh, the reason I mentioned this, there are a lot of uh, acts, uh, heritage acts, as they would say, who uh, make new music and then they play the new music and the audience doesn't pay attention, which is difficult for the act. So that's why I'm bringing it up. Yeah, we do new so- newer songs. We do a song called uh, "Beautiful World" that Fly Amaro, or the other guitar player, and I, <clears throat> and my partner Lance Hoppen, wrote together. And that song is not as wasn't on any of our big records. It came out in this <clears throat> Sunset Boulevard released uh, double CD that came out a couple of years ago. But they love that. You know, it goes over great. Uh, there's a song called No More Than You Can Handle, which is the title of that package. And a song that Lance wrote with uh, his brother Larry Hoppin before Larry passed away. And unfortunately, 2012, uh, Larry was one of the original four members of the band uh, died. And, and uh, But this song has been out for a couple of years now. And, uh, and Lance sings that and people love it and ask for it when they come by the merchandise table for signing autographs or what have you. They, they say, which one is that song on? And they want to buy that, and they want to buy Beautiful World. So it's a, it's not a total. I guess, you know, I heard Jackson Brown and James Taylor in Chicago uh, a couple weeks ago, um, or maybe it was just last week. And uh, Jackson's got a new record out, uh, Downhill from Everywhere, and uh, he did a few songs from that at, in the early part of his show, and the audience was. Yeah, I think they were happy. Jackson's audience loves him, and he can kind of do whatever he wants. But I think they really wanted to hear the old familiar uh, songs, and he gave them to him, but not until after they listened to some of the new stuff. And that's that's one way to do it. We kind of mix them in throughout the show. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. You were talking about. So you grew up where? Elmira, New York. Okay, and your parents did what for a living? My dad is a physicist, uh, electrical engineer, PhD. Uh, worked for Westinghouse mainly on contracts for NASA and the Defense Department. He designed or led the design team 
that built the camera for the first moon landing when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. They couldn't send somebody up there uh, uh, to go down and, you know, put the tripod on the ground and then go back up the ladder again and say, now here comes the first man on the moon. So it had to ride on the, the strut of the lander. So it would already be down there when Neil Armstrong came down the ladder. And it had to withstand the shock of the landing and the, the heat of the blast off and the cold of the trip and still work perfectly when somebody pushed a remote button. And so he, uh, but he also uh, has his name on patents for Landsat satellite cameras and infrared night vision devices and uh, you know, all kinds of imaging, mainly was his thing. Uh, my mom uh, had master's in English and creative writing and, uh, and also later in divinity. Uh, she wanted all three of her sons to be priests. My dad wanted all three of his sons to be scientists or mathematicians. My older brother was an actuary. My younger brother, a priest, and I fell in the middle somewhere writing songs that people said were too preachy. Okay, so you talked about picking up an electric guitar. A, how did you acquire that, literally? And B, what inspired you? Because this is pre-Beatles, right? Well, first I picked up an acoustic guitar. My parents bought my brother Jim, my older brother, uh, a nylon string classical guitar from Sears Roebuck. And... uh and they asked if he wanted lessons. And he said, no, I'll just give it to John. He'll figure it out. <laughs> and so, so I got to play his birthday guitar. And uh, it's funny. I just assumed they sent it to you tuned. It came in a cardboard box. We didn't have a case for it. And uh, so I tuned each string to the note that it was closest to and made up a bunch of fingerings for that tuning. And after a couple of weeks, Jim went to the library and found out what the real tuning of the guitar was. And I was crushed because none of my fingerings worked anymore. So I had to start over again with the correct tuning. But, but you know, I had enough piano and enough music theory at that point, you know, studying since I was five till I was 12 when this happened. Uh, so I knew what notes went together for a chord and I figured out how to finger them. And, and uh, when it became an electric guitar, the same, same thing worked. So uh, that was really how I started. My grandmother in... Uh, Providence, my father's mother had an old RCA radio, the kind of waist high one that's wood with the grill cloth and carvings on it and a big 15 inch speaker. It was a wonderful thing. And, and, uh, she had records. My dad had plugged in a hot wired in a turntable so he could play through that. And she had records by Chet Atkins and by the Weavers with Pete Seeger. And so I heard. Pete doing This Land is Your Land and Little Boxes when I was five. And I heard Chet Atkins doing Glowworm from that same age. And we went to her house on the way out to vacation on an island off the coast of Massachusetts, Kodiunk Island. And uh, so the night before and the night after we were on the island for vacation, I would always uh, get to listen to these records. And by the time I was able to play guitar, I was able to sit in front of her her radio and, and turntable and and try to play along. And that's, I really learned, you know, acoustic guitar uh, skills and electric guitar skills, you know, from that. So uh, Chet, Chet Atkins was listened to by a lot of guitar players, including obviously George Harrison. And, you know, he influenced many, many other players. You know, when I heard Chuck Berry, I, <laughs> I could figure that out because I had listened to Chet Atkins. Okay, so what inspired you to get an electric 
pre-Beatles. And once the pre-Beatles, once the Beatles arrived in 64, how did that change your vision and play? Well, um, my little brother, Jerry wanted the guitar. And when he had a birthday that was old enough, my parents gave him an electric guitar. It was also a Sears Roebuck silver tone electric guitar. Um, which are actually valuable nowadays. They're kind of rare. I know, it's kind of funny. Yeah, but um, but I borrowed it. It was kind of the same thing. You saw, here, John, show me how to do this. And I Okay, did you, have the, did you have the one with the speaker and amplifier in the case? I didn't have that. You know, Springsteen had one of those, and I always wanted one. But, uh, <clears throat> but Bruce, uh, yeah, I've done a bunch of work with him, and, uh, and uh, I know other people who've had them too. But... Uh, but uh, but anyway, it was high school dance was the occasion where you had to play electric guitar. You could sit around doing folk music with an acoustic guitar, and that's all well and good. But <clears throat> you want to play in a band with drums, it's electric guitar uh, through some kind of amplification. So, so I started doing that, and uh, it was, you know, probably you know, fourteen, fifteen years old in high school when I first heard a bass guitar. I was playing in a school gymnasium in Elmira, New York, and some kid came up from Sayre, Pennsylvania, across the border and, and brought his Ampeg B-15 and a Fender bass. And I was like, wow, that's like the, the earth is moving. The frequencies are so low. And, it, you know, once you hear that, you never want to be in a band without a bass guitar again. And so that my horizons, horizons broadened. There wasn't a lot of adventurous music in Elmira, New York at the time. So I wound up hearing it. When I went to college, I wound up hearing it and playing it uh, there. And when I went to, uh, I dropped out of college after a year and a half. I went to Notre Dame University for a year, South Bend, Indiana, and, and played in every band I could get into—a bluegrass band, a you know football pep band, uh, a couple of rock and roll bands. Sang in a two-wop you know group, a cappella group, and and uh, then went to Loyola for a semester in Baltimore and um, and found out that a club called the Peppermint Lounge on M Street in Georgetown was having auditions for a house band and got a band together, corrupting my big brother by getting him to play bass in it and, uh, and uh, you know, found another guitar player and a drummer, auditioned and got the gig and dropped out of college to play uh, six nights a week in a club in Georgetown at a time when Emmylou Harris was you know, was playing at the Silver Dollar and Nils Rofkin was playing in town. Roy Buchanan was playing at a place called the Silver, uh, not the Silver Dollar, the, uh, I remember the name of the, the uh, of the club he played in. It was out, out of town a little bit in, in Bladensburg, Maryland. And, and, um, and so, you know, I played in bands there and then the guitar player I was working with, Teddy Spelios, and I, uh, hopped a, a Greyhound bus to New York and started playing at the Cafe Y in Greenwich Village with a couple other players we picked up who played. Uh, I, I was playing bass in that band. And uh, there was another guitar player. And uh, a drummer was Norman Smart, who played with, uh, went on to be the drummer in uh, Mountain with Leslie West, the original drummer from Mountain. And uh, play on a bunch of records by other people as well. Uh, Barbara Keith, Played acoustic guitar, rhythm guitar, and sang and wrote some songs. And, and I wrote, you know, collaborating with uh, with other people in the band and and uh, and by myself, you know, mainly. But 
we made an album for MGM uh, records. Uh, this band wound up being called Kangaroo and, and made an album for, uh, for MGM. And we, we had a tour quote unquote that consisted of uh, playing at uh, the MGM records convention in Las Vegas uh, and then at the Singer Bowl, the World's Fairgrounds, opening to the Doors and the Who, and then going back to the Cafe Wa, where we actually were alternating sets at the Cafe Wa for quite a while with uh, various bands, but the one that people might remember is the Castiles, which was uh, Bruce, Stings, Bruce Springsteen's band from New Jersey. Uh, it was an underage club where the teeny boppers came in from Jersey and, and from Long Island. And could listen to music all day uh, for five bucks or whatever it was. Admission, maybe it was less than that, probably was. Each member of each band got $6 a night and all the potato chips and ice cream they could eat. There was, there was no real food there and there was no alcohol, obviously. So, so uh, you know, but it was for a guy that was, you know, I was 18 when I started playing there and it was, I could actually live on, six dollars a night as long as i found some place to sleep a friend's couch or sometimes a rooftop or a park bench you know and, and uh it's the glamorous side of the music business but you know it's a start okay going back if you go to your wikipedia page it says you skipped two grades is that true well i skipped senior in high school and i took fourth and fifth grade in the same year uh so yeah Okay, let's go back to you're in New York. So you make this stiff album with MGM. What do you say to yourself? I'm going to be a performer. I'm going to be a songwriter. I'm looking for another record deal. How does it play out from there? Uh, Johanna and I met, actually. We're introduced by Barbara Keith, uh, singer and acoustic guitar player from, from Kangaroo. And uh, Barbara and she had both worked at... Uh, uh, Women's Day magazine and and at the Village Voice and knew each other from that and had, they both wore leather miniskirts and had posters of Bob Dylan over their desks and and uh, you know so they Johanna came to a show and Barbara introduced me to her and we became friends and I started you know asking her out and uh, we wound up becoming a couple and uh and living together in an apartment on the Lower East Side where Janis Joplin wound up eventually coming in and asking us to write a song. It was just right place at the right time, uh, serendipity, uh, the higher power, you know, it's a, it, wasn't, it was a plan that I couldn't have made up. So, Okay, so how did it become Orleans? Uh, it took a while. Johanna and I, you know, we're writing songs. I was playing guitar with various other people. I played on sessions in New York City. I was a hired gun for guys like Charlie Colello, who were uh, producing Lucristi and various other artists. I, I wound up playing on, um, uh, well, when we moved to Woodstock. I was asked by John Simon, who I'd worked with uh, uh, on a Seals and Crofts album that he was producing in Northern California, Wally Hyder's studio, uh, uh, I played, you know, wound up playing on uh, a couple of a couple of sessions in LA. Uh, I made a, I made a solo record for Columbia after after Kangaroo called Action, 
Harvey Brooks, who played with the Electric Flag and played bass on Dylan's Blonde on Blonde album. And, you know, he worked with Paul Butterfield and lots of other great... Uh, and was the bassist on Super Session, too. That's correct. Uh, Harvey's, you know, a very uh, influential and, and well-known uh, great bass player. So uh, he had been hired by Clive Davis to be a a and production guy at Columbia Records. And he was looking for people to sign. And my manager at the time told me to go see him. And I did and played some songs for, for Harvey. And he signed me. And uh, we wound up going to L.A. and making part of the record there and making part of it in Northern California. And, uh, and the drummer on a good part of their record was Wells Kelly, who went on to be the first drummer in Orleans. Uh, he went to California with us and we were playing gigs out there. And Wells asked his astrologer what he should do. And his astrologer said, go east. So he quit the band and went to France and uh, played in the band called King Harvest there with his brother Sherman Kelly, who had written the song Dancing in the Moonlight, which became a hit for the band King Harvest. Uh, we got another guy, uh, Greg Thomas, playing drums, who went on to play in Taj Mahal's band with me and John Simon. Simon had uh, done some work with Taj. And while we were in Northern California, I played on the Seals and Crofts Down Home, Down Home album, their second album that John Simon produced. So he came back from all that stuff to uh, New York and John Simon lived in Woodstock and he asked me and Johanna to come up and stay at his house because he was putting together a band to play and record at Bearsville Studios. Albert Grossman, the manager who managed Butterfield, the band, Bob Dylan, Janis Joplin, uh, Todd Rundgren, Peter, Paul and Mary, etc. built this studio, Bearsville Studios in, uh, in Woodstock, New York. And he needed a band to go in there as guinea pigs so they could test everything out and make sure it all worked. They can't charge 250 bucks an hour or whatever it was for people to come in and book a recording session if the headphones are going to feed back or you plug the, the bass drum into track one, it comes out of track 25. It has to be, somebody has to be the guinea pig. So John Simon, Harvey Brooks, Greg Thomas, the drummer, Paul Harris, a wonderful organ and keyboard player, and I were the guinea pigs. And we recorded while we were there, recorded a version of Dancing in the Moonlight as a John Hall record that was never released. Uh, uh, it, you know, was in the can. I Someday I have to get it out and listen to it, see, uh, see how it is. Because uh, at this point, lots of people have done that song, Hootie and the Blowfish and King Harvest, obviously. Uh, uh, Orleans did a version of this, a title track of one of our CDs. And um, so... But this was all a process of learning how to be in the studio, learning what you can do in the studio. It started out with Kangaroo, which was really education and recording. And then my record, the Action Album, was another one. I think of it now. And we, John Simon played on that. John Sebastian played harmonica on it and, and guitar. And, and uh, Richard Green, the fiddle player from Sea Train, played on it. There's a, you know, a lot, of, a lot of pretty wonderful musicians are on that record. And, um, but it was really not until I got into uh, Bearsville Studios with John Simon that I started to really understand what the studio can do as a tool for musicians and for songwriters and, and producers. And, and uh, while we were there, our apartment on the Lower East Side got broken into. And Johanna and I uh, wound up. Uh, driving back down to the city 
loading everything into a car that we cared about from our apartment and driving back up north to Woodstock and taking the first rental we could find. And we lived in Woodstock in rentals for you know, a couple of different places and like a year and a half. And then when Janice's version of Half Moon came out, unfortunately, it was posthumous. She had died before the record was released, which is in addition to her popularity, it was somebody dies and then that first posthumous record comes out, it races to the top. And we got our first royalty check from Half Moon and we bought a house in Saugerties and she's still living there today. And uh, we lived there together for uh, almost 30 years. So how do you feel when the Columbia album is not successful? Uh, well, I was not happy, but we, you know, I still, um, was under contract to them and, and, uh, and we had an idea about, you know, forming a band. I've done this record as a John Hall record, but we cut a bunch of other things with Paul Harris and, uh, Wells and then Greg Thomas on drums and, and with, uh, Harvey Brooks on bass, we were going to try to be a band. And the best name we came up with was Thunderfrog. And Columbia didn't care for that idea. So, you know, wound up not being signed to them anymore. And, and uh, But there's always another song. There's always another gig. There's always, hopefully, another band to put together. And uh, I, I went uh, on tour with Taj Mahal, uh, playing all around the country, three-month-long uh, three tour. And uh, after that, oh, we recorded a double live album that was uh, Fillmore East and Fillmore West called The Real Thing. Uh, uh, the guy who promoted the original Woodstock Festival, one of the three promoters of the Woodstock Festival, Michael Lang, had a little record label he started called Just Sunshine. And he asked me if I would play on a record by uh, Karen Dalton, a singer he, was, uh, he had signed to his label. A wonderful combination of sort of jazz, Billy Holiday kind of jazz and folk music, contemporary of Dylan's and a friend of, of his and Tim Harden's and and uh, you know she was a, a very quirky, unique singer. I played on her record and then was asked to go to Europe on tour with her, and uh, so I did. And we had a band with Bill Keith, famous famous uh, banjo and steel player who unfortunately passed away a year or so ago. He said. Uh, but known by every banjo player in the world and uh, played with Ian and Sylvia, banjo and steel guitar with them. And, and uh, so Bill was playing in that band and uh, uh, Denny Sywell, who wanted to play drums with McCartney and Wings, was playing drums in that band. And we opened to Santana all over the continent um, and we're supposed to play in England and uh, after we did the, the European continent, uh, Karen never got a sound check, although she was told she was going to. And when we played at Montreux, Switzerland, she refused to go on. It was the 12th time in a row, I think, with no sound check. And she just got mad and walked out, took off down the street and didn't come back. And the promoter came backstage and said, uh, Santana's not ready yet. There's a big crowd here. Somebody's got to do a show. And I said, well, I'll do it. And I wanted to play. I actually like music enough. I wanted to get on stage and play something. And so uh, we got out there. I was playing my Stratocaster through a little Princeton amp and through Santana's big sound system. And Bill Keith, the steel player and, guitar and banjo player, played bass. 
and Danny Hankin, a friend of Karen's who was playing acoustic rhythm, played rhythm. And we did Jimmy Reed songs and, and Marvin Gaye songs. And uh, we did a Ray Charles song. Feels so good. Feels like a ball game on a rainy day. You know, I feel, feel so bad. Feels like a ball game on a rainy day. And, uh, and then we finished with uh, Don't Bargard That Joint, My Friend which they all knew, the audience knew it from Easy Rider. I didn't realize that. But. So we finished and I waved goodbye, went down to the dressing room and the promoter came down and says, you have to do an encore. And I went upstairs and people were stamping and holding up lighters. And, and I went, wow, you know, that's amazing. I just thought I was going to get away with it, with killing it, you know, 40 minutes of time so that Fantana could be ready. But so we did another Jimmy Reed song for an encore and, and then what? you know, went off and Karen got kicked off the tour because no headliner wants an opening act who won't go on. And, and, uh, so I was flying home after that show and, uh, and thinking on the plane, I should start a band and do our own song. I mean, Johanna and I'd written so many songs at that point. We had plenty of songs to do. And, uh, so I started playing with, uh, different combinations of, of musicians at Woodstock. And that was in 1971. And, uh, in December of 71, Wells Kelly joined and he came back from King Harvest in Europe. And I've been playing with uh, Howie Wyeth on drums and a guy named Buffalo Gelber. Bill, nickname was Buffalo Bill Gelber playing bass. And uh, uh, Howie quit and, uh, and and Buffalo quit for different reasons. And it was me and Wells in our basement. Johanna's in my basement in Saugerties looking at each other going, now what? Um, and and Wells said, uh, I know this guy in Ithaca named Larry Hoppin. He plays anything. He plays guitar, plays keyboard, plays bass, plays trumpet, can sing great. And I said, well, why don't you call him? So, so he called Larry and Larry came down and the three of us made our first, did our first performance, our first show as Orleans in January of 1972, which will be 50 years this January. And why Orleans? We were playing a lot of... Uh, we didn't have quite enough original songs to do all originals. We would have to do two shows or maybe three touch shows sometimes at clubs to keep people dancing. So we would drink enough that the club owner would be happy and invite us back. And uh, so we were doing covers of R&B songs and reggae songs. And we were doing a lot of New Orleans uh, influenced music, a lot of Neville's, Neville Brothers, uh, Meters, Alan Toussaint stuff. And so... You know, every band, I think, sits around and tries to think of names. And um, usually two people hate it and one guy likes it. And so one night, Wells said, we had a gig that weekend in Oswego, New York. And he said, uh, how about Orleans? We went, okay, we'll use that. So we went up there and we had a really good gig. In fact, our last show, I, I, I met somebody who was there at that gig. Who's on the radio now in Pittsburgh. We were playing in Kittening, Pennsylvania, outside, of, just east of Pittsburgh. And, uh, but the guy was at that show in Oswego where he was going to college. And, and, uh, w- for the next few weeks, we kept saying, we're going to, we better change the name if we're going to change it. And, and, but that guy in Oswego wanted to hire us back and he had to use Orleans again, or people wouldn't know who to come see, you know? And, and, and so we did, and it wound up taking on the meaning that, you know, that became Orleans identity. It's a, you know, it's fine. There was a fad for a while of naming bands after cities like Chicago or after states, or you know Boston and uh, uh, 
Alabama, uh, and then it was uh, continents. And uh, <laughs> it was well. It's uh, funny. I always thought maybe it was Orleans from Cape Cod. Well, people didn't know thought that on Cape Cod. That it was a lot of a lot of states have an Orleans, just like every state seems to have a Woodstock in it. It's just people aren't very original naming naming towns. Okay, so play it out. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Getting a record deal with Orleans. <laughs> well, we played as a trio for nine months. <clears throat> Lance Hoppin, Larry's younger brother, Graduated from high school on Long Island. And you know, the Hoppin brothers grew up, and their sister also, uh, Linda, grew up with parents who were both musicians who had met on a gig. And they both taught music. So they all had this incredible knowledge and proficiency in various instruments. And and Lance, uh, after nine months of our being a, uh, a trio, came up and auditioned in September of 72 uh, in Johannes in my basement, uh, on bass and he played bass really well and sang harmony great. And, uh, he and Larry got along great cause they were brothers and, and we just, uh, became a quartet like that. And then, uh, became a quintet for the fourth album, the Wicking and Dreaming album with 
with uh, Cherry Murata playing drums and then, you know, went back to uh, quartet after that. Um, and then I left and went solo for a couple records and John Hall band for a couple records and, and the band continued without me and, uh, and had another top 10 hit with Love Takes Time, which Larry wrote with uh, his wife at the time, Marilyn. And um, so, you know, we just, we got back together after Wells passed away. I'm, I'm really sorry. Uh, we all were incredibly sorry. Wells was probably the guy in the band I was closest to in the beginning and, and like a brother to me. I used to say at his parents' house, you know, and hang with his brothers and his sister when we played in Ithaca, New York, which was in the beginning was like once a month we played in Ithaca. We were working New York State and, and New England, you know, uh, in the beginning, we're kind of a regional band. And so Wells uh, passed away in 1984, and I uh, sang at his memorial with uh, with uh, Larry and Lance, and it was the first time we had gotten on stage and sung together in, in a few years. And we went, wow, that sound, you know, it was it took, I guess it took Wells time for us to say, you know, there's something here we should really be doing together. And we were all too big for that band. It was too big for our britches. And we needed a we needed a therapist more than a manager. You know, we needed somebody who could say, you guys are nuts. You know, you've, you've pushed this rock up the hill and gotten it rolling down the hill to the point where you've got a couple of top, top 10 records in a row and albums that are selling well. You're on the same label with the Eagles and Jackson Brown and Joni Mitchell. What the hell do you think you're doing? <laughs> but, you know, a lot of bands break up because of personnel, you know, friction and stuff like that. And then some of them get back together. And we're the one of the ones that did. Okay. How do you get the deal with ABC and how do you go from ABC to Asylum? Uh, we got that deal with ABC by auditioning uh, or playing showcases at clubs in New York. We, we played, first of all, at uh, a place called the Mercer Art Center. Uh, we actually were on a double bill there with uh, Manhattan Transfer. And they had no de- no deal before that, and neither did we. But they were signed, and, and we got signed by ABC coming out of that showcase. And shortly after that, the building fell down, and we like to say we brought the house down. Right. Also, that's where the New York Dolls started, too. They did. It was, uh, for a brief time, it was a very hot place for bands to be discovered. Uh, and then... Um, we were actually originally wooed by Cashman and West, who had uh, Tommy West and uh, maybe it was Paul. Paul, Paul Ka- was it Paul Cashman? I'm yeah, to I remember. Think yeah, I think that's right. So anyway, uh, we wound up deciding we wanted Barry Beckett and Roger Hawkins to produce us for ABC, uh, a drummer and piano player from the uh, Muscle Shoals rhythm section, and we wound up going down to Muscle Shoals and making that first Orleans album there with Barry and Roger producing. And we had been big fans of uh, their work with the Staple Singers and with Wilson Pickett and with, you know, a lot of the R&B stuff we were doing wound up being things that they had played on. So uh, they weren't used to not playing on records. They they sat in, Barry and Roger sat in the control room and we were all a little nervous. Wells Kelly, I think that our drummer was especially nervous because he was such a fan of Roger's playing. But, you know, a lot of people... A lot of our hardcore longtime fans still think that first Orleans album was our best record ever. So they ended up doing a good job, even though they weren't playing in your eyes. Oh, yeah. You know, they, 
they know what they're doing. Um, and, uh, and we played well enough that, uh, that the record worked and they were happy with it. And, but, you know, ABC put it out and had, we kind of a regional hit in the Northeast with it. And it did well in, uh, uh, the Netherlands and, and, uh, Benelux countries, but, um, but they decided with our second album that we released, we recorded, self-produced our second album at Bearsville Studios in Woodstock, uh, where I had learned a lot about recording. And, and so, uh, and that's, that record had the song Let There Be Music on it and the song Dance With Me on it in an earlier version. But ABC heard it and said, we don't hear a hit. And they dropped us. And uh, we did another showcase after that in, uh, in New York at Max's Kansas City. And there were a couple of uh, A&R people, Mary Martin from Warner Brothers and Chuck Plotkin from Asylum Records, who heard us there. And there was a little bit of a, I don't know if it was a bidding war, but there was a competition between Warners and uh, and uh, Asylum, which was an indie label at the time, and and we decided to go uh, with Chuck Plotkin and Asylum, and we're glad we did because Chuck is the first producer I've ever worked with, and I think for Larry and Lance and Wells it was the same thing, who could really tell us something that we didn't want to hear, and and impress us, uh, or be knowledgeable enough and able to explain himself well enough that we would listen. And and that's invaluable to a, a developing artist. Do you remember something he might have said that you didn't want to hear? <laughs> yeah. The song Give One Heart, which was on our third album, Let There Be Music album, the, the one with Dance With Me. On. Great cover by Linda Ronstadt. Linda recorded it after she heard it on that record. But Johanna and I had written a song that had a whole bridge to the song that's not in that record. And, you know, Chuck came to us and said, this is a wonderful song, but the bridge belongs to another song. Just get rid of it. And the B section to the verse should be the chorus. And then the chorus should be the bridge. <laughs> so the B section was the, was give one heart, get back to you. That's the paradox of I love you. And uh, Chuck said, make that the chorus, which of course it is. And it should have been all along. And the, can't stop saying it, I love you, used to be the chorus when we first wrote it. He, that, <laughs> he said, that's got to be the bridge. And that's what we recorded. And that's what Linda Ronstadt fell in love with. She recorded it. So, you know, Chuck actually was able to listen with objectivity you know, to things that we were too close to and couldn't see a forest for the trees. Okay. So how does Still the One come together and... What's going through your mind when it becomes such an uber success? Well, it came together because Chuck did the same thing with that. I mean, uh, uh, Johanna wrote the lyric. Uh, friends of ours used to live downstairs in the village from us, was getting divorced from her husband and asked Johanna to write a song about people staying together because there's so many songs about people breaking up. And Johanna wrote that lyric and handed it to me on the back of an envelope. And I wrote the music to it in about 15 minutes. And, and, um, uh, when we were cutting it, none of us knew how important it was going to be to us. Uh, we were actually thinking, and the label was thinking, maybe Spring Fever would be the first single, or maybe, you know, uh, some other songs. There were various tunes that were in the running. Uh, Chuck knew that was going to be it. And he said, uh, we cut it three times. The first time with Wells playing uh 
I think we cut it the first time with Wells and Jerry both playing drum kits. We, we were performing at the time with Jerry Murad and Wells Kelly playing double drums on a lot of stuff. And then sometimes one would play percussion and the other would play drums. So first it was two drummers. It didn't work. Then we cut it. Chuck said, you got to cut it with, uh, you know, with one drummer and percussion. So we tried it with Wells playing drums and he was playing a shuffle like the old fashioned kind of on the hi hat shuffle. And, uh, and we were both times we were like, okay, there's a good track. And Chuck went, nope, that's not a good track. That's not it. And, uh, he asked everybody to leave, uh, and go out for lunch, except me and Jerry Murata and, uh, and Chuck and Jerry and I took it apart, took the beat apart. And, uh, Chuck's the kind of guy, he's a man in the street listener, and he would drum on his knees. You could tell that he was into it and the music was making him happy because he was drumming it on his knees while we're playing. But we get, we started doing Still the One with those other two things, and he stopped drumming on his knees. And he was like, what just happened? And so so he was going, you just got to have this doom, da, doom, da, doom, da, you know, none of this da, 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 da shuffle. So, uh so we developed this thing where Jerry's playing straight eight beats on the hi-hat and backbeat on the snare drum and the bass drum's going boom, ba-boom, boom, ba-boom, boom, boom, ba-boom, boom, ba-boom. It's like a drum machine. And Jerry was one of the guys who's worked with Peter Gabriel, shows it. You know, before there was a drum machine, Jerry could play like a drum machine. He didn't feel that he had to do fills or that he had to play something fancy, but just like slugging it out, you know, and still the one is that the drum part is that. And then I had the idea of playing the upbeat piano. I'd done that on a demo of the song. So it's the two, but, 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 but on the Fender Rhodes. And, uh, and the guitar was doing Chuck Perry. It just came together like a machine. And everybody else came back from lunch and Jerry played the drums and Wells played tambourine on it. And that was the the third time and the version that's on the record. But it's amazing things that can happen in the course of recording a song that most people would never, if you weren't there, you wouldn't know what a journey it was. There was a dropout on Larry's lead vocal on that song. We had the whole thing done. We triple tracked the backup vocals. We had done the double lead guitar. First, I played the melody on the lead and then Larry harmonized with it and and uh, and we get to the end and we're almost ready to mix. And we've been told the song's too long. It needs to be under four minutes. It needs to be three and a half minutes for AM radio, something somewhere around there. This was back when AM radio was still a thing. And um, so uh, Val Garay was engineering uh, and mixing the record. And we put it on the two-inch tape. And he got the splicing tape out. We said, well, like this first chorus of the fade, we have to take that out because we've got to make the whole thing shorter and still get to the ending. And um, so uh, so Val cuts the chorus out. He's got the tape hanging around his neck. He puts the butt ends of the two-inch tape together in the splicing block, takes a piece of splicing tape, tamps it down, and uh, takes it back up, re- rolls it back on the reel, and then hits play. And it goes over the head. And when Larry's singing the end of the bridge, uh, even though we grow old, it grows new. You're still the one. It goes, still the one. Like Buddy Holly. There's a hiccup in it. And we're going, no, what happened? And Val pulls out the splice and looks at it, you know, in the light and says, 
a little piece of oxide came off of it. We just run it back and forth over the house so many times that it's coming apart. We better mix this thing before the whole thing falls apart. And we went, wait, can't we find that? Is it on the floor? And he goes, it's a shag rug. It's a little piece of oxide from the tape. No one will ever hear it. And we're going, you're kidding. Uh, I mean, we all heard him saying, still a one. And instead it's still, it has the little Buddy Holly thing in it. Nobody has ever mentioned it to me after all these years. Well, I suddenly heard it. I thought it was, it was intentional. Everybody thought it was intentional. You know, I mean, I, I even did a Facebook contest back a few years ago. And I said, you know, the first person can tell me where the dropout is in Larry's vocal gets a free pair of tickets to the show. And people guessed everywhere else in the song, but that, you know, and it's just amazing how close you can get to a project that you don't see the big picture. And Val Garay was absolutely, I mean, Val actually did one mix of it. And this is before automation. We had, you know, Val was working the lead vocal and the guitars, and I had the tom-toms, and Larry had the backup vocals, was behind the console, reaching over from the back of the console, writing the backup vocals. And, you know, everybody had something, and we rehearsed it, and then we rolled it. And before it even rolled back on the two the two-track tapes so we could hear the mix, Val had his coat on, and his girlfriend was the door, and he said, we're going to lunch. I'll see you, and we'll do the next song in an hour or two. And we're going, Val. That might not be it. Well, you got to stay here. You know, we're paying you a lot of money to mix this stuff. And he said, my hands were shaking. That was it. And he left. And that's the record. I mean, it's just, you know, sometimes you need a professional who's better at some things than you are to come in and do them. And we just had been, you know, we had been uh, running our own ship for a little too long. Okay. Then it becomes a gigantic hit. What's it like writing a gigantic hit and then trying to follow it up? Well, uh, you know, the thing is that we, the songs on that record were, you know, were already recorded. The follow-up had to be on the record. And the the single that followed it was, uh, uh, was Reach. And, uh, you know, perhaps what we should have done was wait until the, until the spring and put out spring fever or the late winter and put out spring fever. You know, hindsight is 2020. We'll, we'll never know uh, what might've happened, but um, reach did pretty well. It was a top 40 record. It got into, you know, the upper reach of the charts in the Southeast. It was a, it was a big hit, uh, Florida, the Carolinas, Virginia, you know, but not as big a national hit as, uh, as, uh, as still the one. And then, we did a lot of touring. We went on a tour with Jackson Brown and uh, on his, it was the running on empty tour of Jackson's. We opened to him all over the country, three month tour. And uh, it was a great package uh, and great exposure for us. But, uh, you know, and then another year of touring after that, before we were getting ready to go in the studio and some stuff happened between us on the road in the band that, uh, that, convinced me a combination of things started to be competition for getting songs on the album and uh you know when johanna and i've been making money from writing songs for years so it was it was not unusual for us to make a living from writing songs but uh when still the one came out well dance with me first on the third album and then still the one on our fourth album and uh and johanna and i were making more money you know uh, geometrically more money from uh 
from those songs as writers, in addition to whatever artist royalties were going to come. And um, there were wives and girlfriends on the bus who would actually kind of egg the men on, the male members of the band on. And uh, there were a lot of Yokos in the band at that point. <laughs> but uh, I wound up uh, deciding I wanted to make a record of my solo record so that I could put, Johanna and I had more songs that we could possibly put on a single record anyway, and um, on an album anyway. And uh, and the discussion about what songs really should be on our next record was taking a turn that, in my opinion, and, and in Chuck Plotkin's opinion also, didn't necessarily have to do with what's the best song. Uh, but, you know, that's a matter of opinion. It's always subjective. How did no nukes come together? And how hard was it to pull together? Well, I made the first solo, my first solo record for Asylum. I was still under contract to them. You know, when you talk about when I was talking about actually uh, needing a therapist instead of a manager or a record label or a producer. I mean, the, the Asylum Records, when I told them that I was going to quit Orleans and go solo, they went, great. Now we got two bands instead of one, you know, two acts. And, it, you know, they should have said, wait a second, <laughs> you know. Uh, but anyway, so I made a record for them. Uh, it was just called John Hall and uh, Steve Gadd, Wilton, Wilton Felder, Joe Sample, uh, Dave Sandborn, Michael Brecker, you know, playing on it, all kinds of wonderful musicians contributing. And um, and then I could have made another record for them. I was signed for another Asylum album, but Cavallo and Ruffalo, who managed me and Orleans, were saying, uh, uh, they also, by the way, said, Great, now we got two bands instead of one. But uh, but they were saying, you know, we got Earth, Wind, and Fire's uh, new label distributed by Columbia. It's called ARC, American Recording Company. Uh, and they talked me into leaving Asylum and making a record for ARC. Um, there was a picture in Billboard of me and Maurice White from Earth, Wind, and Fire with me signing. Uh, White Inks Hall was the caption, you know, uh, signing the contract with, with ARC to make a record for them through Columbia. And that record was called Power. And the song Power was the title track, obviously, and the song Plutonium is Forever was on there also. Uh, both written uh, about nuclear power and about uh, various kinds of pollution, especially radioactive pollution. And uh, there are plenty of others. This song called Cocaine Drain, which was about a couple of friends of mine, uh, and I later became that guy who were was... Uh, Doing too many uh, chemicals, too many street drugs to uh, uh, to be able to function very well. At that point, I you know was playing racquetball, everybody, and I was on the straight and narrow. But uh, but well, that's another long story. Um, so the Power album comes out, and I'd already been doing. I've been gotten involved with uh, the anti nuclear movement when the New York State Power Authority decided to build a nuclear station uh, about uh, six miles north of where Johanna and our daughter Sophie and I were sleeping. And uh, I decided I didn't want it as a neighbor. And I, I went to hearings and, you know, wound up getting the impression that they were, that they were going to put it in by hell or high water and they had to be stopped. And so I, uh, I, I, uh, started organizing people and, you know, the same kind of community organizing thing as the junkyards, uh, wound up, um, 
joining and or helping to start a group called uh, Mid-Hudson Nuclear Opponents and doing fundraisers for them. Uh, Bonnie Ray came up and did a fundraiser with me for that uh, and uh, in Poughkeepsie, New York, at a theater. And, and uh, we wound up doing a show uh, in Manhattan, uh, Jackson Brown and James Taylor, and I think uh, Carly Simon was there and uh, Jesse Cohen Young. And, and it was a benefit for the Karen Silkwood Fund. And uh, a lot of people know Karen or you certainly learned about her from the movie Silkwood. And uh, so my album Power was getting ready to come out and I was singing Power. I'd sung Power at the Seabrook Nuclear Reactor, a big demonstration that the Clamshell Alliance organized there, 25,000 people, you know, state troopers and guard dogs on the other side of the fence and helicopters buzzing overhead. And it was me and Pete Seeger and Jackson Brown uh, with Pete uh, singing, you know, his songs and and uh, This Land is Your Land, whatever else he was doing. And Jackson singing Before the Deluge and, and me singing Power. We sang that the debut in public of the song Power was Pete and me and Jackson singing the chorus because there were no verses yet. This was before I recorded it and before Johanna and I finished uh, a verse to that song. So, uh, so pa- the Power album came out two weeks before Three Mile Island happened in March of 1979. And, uh, and it went up the charts and every radio station was playing this song power, uh, coming out of the news about the partial meltdown in Pennsylvania, at three mile Island. And, uh, and so we were doing this fundraiser uh, for the Karen Silkwin fund. And afterwards there was the palladium in New York. We're backstage afterwards. And Everybody's going, what do we do now? And I said, let's just call everybody we know and go to the Madison Square Garden, you know, and it's like, I know how we'll save the school. We'll put on a show. And so we did. And it started out as one night at the garden, it wound up being five, you know, wound up being a record in a Warner Brothers movie and and uh, having a ton of incredible uh, musicians, you know, many of whom I didn't know before we worked together on that. Jackson and Bonnie, I did. And, uh, but that's basically how it started. And, you know, I, I brought in a couple of people who everybody was assigned to ask certain people. And, you know, I, I asked Chaka Khan and, and, um, uh, Ray Parker and radio who were on the record, who were managed by my managers, Covello and Ruffalo. And, and also, uh, uh, Peter Tosh, uh, you know, Jackson asked Bruce Springsteen and, and uh, Tom Petty and, uh, you know, Bonnie was asking different people and James was asking different people. And it was just, we all just pulled together and the word started to get around and it wound up becoming Crosby, Sills and Nash and the Doobie Brothers. And, uh, uh, you know, it was, uh, we had people dropping in even without being announced, like, uh, like you know, Paul Simon getting up and doing Mealing Julio, you know, unannounced with just him and an electric guitar and 20,000 people singing along. And, uh, and, uh, it's just, uh, took on a life of its own. And it's, it's something that, uh, some people say was sort of the beginning or one of the first of the sort of, uh, giant benefits for a cause. Um, so, and also, you know, it was, it was, uh, it raised enough money actually for, uh, over a million dollars was given away in grants. Bonnie and I were the only two musicians who sat on the foundation board as well as the production board. 
of Muse, Musicians United for Safe Energy. And uh, and I, I wound up reading hundreds of grant proposals and voting on who to give that million dollars away to. And, and, and grants that range from, you know, a thousand bucks to maybe 10,000 bucks. So uh, local and regional groups that were working on education about re- renewable energy and, and uh, uh, efficiency and, and the drawbacks of uh, power that was uh, generated by splitting the atom and creating radioactive waste. And so it's uh, it was successful from that point of view. Uh, I'm proud today of the fact that the song Power has uh, given me the warm power of the sun, restless power of the wind. And, you know, a lot of renewables mentioned in it. Uh, but um, it's, it's a shame that it's taken this long uh, for us to get uh, as aware of the uh, of the limitless potential of uh, solar and wind and the other renewable sources of energy as it has. So how do you end up getting into skiing and being a ski instructor? I'm a, <laughs> I'm a very avid skier. I follow this. I want to know the story from the source. <laughs> I, I uh, Well, my daughter Sophie was uh, six or seven years old. I think it was seven. And uh, her school group was going to, she went to a, a little, uh, the Woodstock Children's Center, a little private uh, grade school in Woodstock. And they were sending a group to uh, to uh, Cortina Valley, which is right near a Hunter Mountain, a little feeder area, uh, learner area. And uh, But they said uh, they needed chaperones. And Sophie came home from school saying, Dad, if you go as a chaperone, I'll go. Otherwise, I don't know. You know, and I said, I can't deprive her. I'd had one experience skiing when I was playing with Taj. We played at some college in New England where they had it was probably uh, maybe Middlebury. Well, someplace where they had a toast. A toe I went to I went to Middlebury. Believe me, I know the Middlebury snowball. My daughter went to Middlebury. I didn't but, know that. Yeah. What year did she graduate? Oh, geez. Um, I should know this, right? Um, see, she graduated from. High school in, I think it was 89. Okay. Um, and, and she was a double major in, uh, English creative writing and, and, uh, and double minor in Spanish and political science. So why did she go to Middlebury? Did she ski when she was there and she considered the whole thing to be a good experience? She was a, she was a ski instructor before she went there. Um, she learned to ski with me. I, I started getting, after we went to Cortina Valley for these six Thursday nights in a row, and I had had a bad skiing experience uh, on a ski toe up in Vermont when I was playing with Taj, and his road manager was some guy from the Sierras who was a good skier. And we're we're in a, a locker room for the dressing room playing in a gymnasium at this college, and there was a pair of skis that were taller than I was, you know, and and some lace up boots and boot you know bear trap bindings, and the guy was going, "Come on, John, I'll teach you to ski." And I fell down, you know, 20 times going up the rope toe and had a hard time getting up again and then fell down 30 times coming down the hill. And I just never did a second run. I thought, I'm too uncoordinated. I can't ski. And, uh, you know, a bad experience will put you off like that. But but when I went with my daughter uh, uh, as part of the school, as a chaperone, I put on the little short skis with this par- parabolic side cut and... The kids all had balloons and those bright colored vests on so people wouldn't run into them. 
And they were snaking down, making wedge turns behind the instructor. And I just did what they were all doing. Yeah, he said, uh, now make a pizza, you know, push out your right ski. Pretend you're spreading peanut butter on bread with the tail of your ski. like the, you know." And I, was, I got down to the lift and I said, I can do this. I, I actually can ski. And so I, I did six weeks of that. And then we started going to, to Hunter Mountain. And uh, which is a, a bigger mountain and, you know, actually has black diamonds and double black diamonds on it. Although out west, they might not be double blacks. But uh, so I uh, I took so many lessons there that I had friends in the ski school. They said, why don't you give it up and just come out for ski school? You get to ski free and, and you get to clinic with the best. And so I did. And I wound up, you know, getting, first of all, uh, passing the mountains. Uh, test and then passing the PSIA test for level one and, and then passing level two, which was a little really? hard. Really? Yeah. I had to take a level two twice. I, because I learned late, I, my my body wasn't used to and my joints weren't used to the the kind of flexibility and the kind of rotation they need to do. Uh, I could I had the, the body mechanics down. I could analyze somebody else's skiing. I understood the theory of it. And, uh, and I, I could ski a lot of terrain, you know, but I, uh, but I, for a while I was, I was only able to really teach beginners and sort of lower intermediates, but, but I got to the point where I was teaching everybody from the top of the mountain and, and, uh, and skiing pretty much anywhere I wanted to. Okay. So how much did you ski? How much did you teach? And when your daughter leaves the nest, I kept going. Did you were still a skier and do you still ski? I was a ski instructor, yeah. Um, I, I I wound up uh, giving up skiing when I went into Congress. It's one of the terrible things about politics. But uh, I actually uh, probably was on snow 90, or 90 to 100 days a year. And uh, and I taught, in 97, I was instructor of the year in 100 Mountain. I don't know if that means I taught better lessons or just more lessons than anybody else. Cause I would take lessons when nobody else would sleeting. No problem. You know, a bus group from New York on a rainy day. Hey, I'll take it. And, uh, you learn a lot doing that. I mean, there's nothing like teaching anything to help you understand how to do it yourself. Well, the mountains are still there. We're waiting I know for they are. you. Yeah. My knees are waiting for some surgical. Uh, you know, help. Uh, okay. <laughs> Take us through the arc of your political career to all. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. 
Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Possibly getting into Congress. Well, in uh, 1989... The county was trying to stick, stick a uh, giant landfill and incinerator on the last undeveloped town, uh, undeveloped farm in the town of Saugerties. It was on the National Historic Register, and it was on the. It had. Uh, it was named the Winston Farm. Um, James Winston, who built the reservoirs and aqueducts that bring Catskill Mountain drinking water to New York City, uh, owned that farm, and it's named after him. And uh, and the. Uh, County legislature decided that was the best place to put 200,000 tons of garbage a year for 20 years uh, and build two incinerators with smokestacks 315 feet tall, which by far would have been the the highest structure in the county. And and, uh, I just, once again, I said, I don't want to have to drive past this. I I was driving my daughter to high school every day past this site. And, uh, And I just said, it's me or it. And organized a group who kind of grew out of the junkyard, anti-junkyard group called the Winston Farm Alliance. And we had everybody in the town, including, you know, both Republican and Democratic town committees, the Little Garden Society, the, the Knights of Columbus, the, uh, you know, church groups, uh, uh, the Police Benevolent Association. Everybody in the town was did not want this. And, um, and we stopped at... Uh, about the same time I got elected, uh, I, I, people in the midst of all this came to me and said, the current representative uh, representing Saugerties in the county legislature voted for this. He voted for the, the, the consultant who recommended this site, and then he voted for another five million bucks to them again after they recommended it in his hometown. You know, at the first they said, we got to find somebody to run. And I said, well, good luck. I got a career, you know. And uh, and uh, and a family. I just didn't really want to do it. And then that month or two later, they came back and said, "We can't find anybody else. If you don't run, he's going to have an uncontested walkover election." And I said, "Well, I can't have that." So I ran, and everybody voted for him. He was mad at him, <laughs> and you know, God bless me. He's a good guy. He's not. You know, it was just he wasn't 
up to the task of understanding what this was really going to do to the town because no no good kinds of development would come in no uh no artistic development no nice housing no uh recreational stuff it was like once you put that kind of well they'd already expanded the uh the toll booth the right side of the toll booth so that oversized trucks could get there right across come out of the throughway right across from this farm easy on easy off you know new york city garbage that's what we were sure was happening because fresh kills was being closed the the big landfill on fresh kills and uh they were you know new york city was shipping garbage as far as the midwest you know they were shipping to oklahoma pennsylvania other you know out of state and we just saw it coming our way and, and uh so I ran, I got elected, I served one term in the county legislature. I had no desire for a career in politics at that point. I was just, you know, well, okay, so we stopped the dump. I actually was on this uh, community affairs committee that that wrote the first recycling law for the, the county of Ulster. And, uh, you know, I, I, was the, I was on the committee that oversaw the methadone maintenance program, and I had an interest in... Um, trying to wean people not just off of drugs, but off of uh, methadone, you know, which can be done as long as you have uh, the resources to have real treatment and talk therapy uh, and not just say, okay, we're cutting you off. And so I, I did some good things there. And then I decided not to run for re-election. A couple of years later, my daughter uh, had gone through freshman, sophomore, and junior year of high school on an austerity budget because the school board couldn't come up with a budget the taxpayers would pass. Uh, and so, you know, you wind up with larger class sizes, with the computers being old, with uh, tennis balls that are dead. She was playing on the tennis team and they were practicing with dead balls. So when they got into a match and opened a can of real tennis balls, they would bounce over her racket. You know? <laughs> and, and, you know, just, but every, you know, like advanced placement languages, uh, all these kinds of things, uh, you lose when you go on austerity. And, uh, so... I decided to run for school board and I, I was determined to get a budget that would pass such so her senior year of high school would not be in austerity. And I ran and I won and I was there for four years and every year I was there, we passed a budget. And the first year we cut taxes by 2% at the same time. I mean, you can really do this stuff if you, <laughs> if you dig into it. And we had a good you know, superintendent who knew where the bodies were buried and where money was hidden and, and, uh, and we were able to, you know, to get the educational job done and actually lower property taxes for people in the town. Okay. You do that for four years. Next step? Uh, back to playing music. And uh, uh, Johanna and I separated and divorced. And uh, I wound up uh, living on a boat for a couple of years, sailing my, at the time, 38-foot uh, sailboat from the Hudson River uh, to Key West and over to Havana, a humanitarian aid mission. I uh, knew enough to get a permit from the Treasury Department uh, as a humanitarian aid. But we were able to deliver medical supplies and musical supplies from Key West to Havana and be exempt from the embargo uh, because both of those things are exempt from the embargo. So, uh, and then sailed back across the Gulf Stream to Florida and back up to Martha's Vineyard and uh Cuddyhunk Island, where I grew up having vacations with my family and still have relatives today. And then down in Long Island and the coast of Jersey and up the Delaware Bay and across the canal to 
Chesapeake Bay and down to Annapolis and sold the boat in Annapolis. And uh, uh, meanwhile, I had met uh, my second wife, Melanie, who uh, uh, I met her in Nashville and we were living in Nashville uh, for a while. And, uh, but um, let's see, what was the question? (laughs) How did you end up running for Congress? Okay. So we decided to move back. Uh, her her dad passed away. Uh, her mom was moving back to New York. Her siblings were all in New York, and nieces and nephews and everything. And and uh, and my daughter was coming to visit Johanna and Saugerties pretty frequently. And I thought, well, New York's a better place. So we moved to New York, but to the east side of the Hudson in Dutchess County, in a town uh, called uh, Dover Plains. And so I, I got there and we were unpacking boxes and settling. And I went, gee, I wonder who my congressperson is. And it turned out it was a 12-year incumbent named Sue Kelly who had voted for a Republican member of the, the Gingrich class, the uh, contract with America or contract on America, as I called it, uh, class of Congress. Uh, she had voted for the war in Iraq and she voted for drilling for oil in the Alaska Wildlife Refuge, both of which I thought were mistakes. And... Uh, and once again, I thought, I'm going to help somebody else win. You know, I don't, I don't really want to run myself, but I knew there were other people running. So I started having coffee or lunch with with uh, candidates who were already four members, uh, four Democratic candidates in a primary to run against the incumbent, Congresswoman Kelly. So uh, I wound up thinking after talking with each of these candidates that I would be probably a better candidate and maybe a better congressman too, because... I just kept running into blind spots in their knowledge of the issues. And uh, the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee out of Washington, at the time being chaired by Rahm Emanuel, who wound up being uh, President Obama's chief of staff and then went on to be be, uh, mayor of Chicago. Uh, Rahm had already endorsed and the DCCC had endorsed a candidate and started training her and sending money her way and everything. And... uh, so when I decided that I met with her too, and I said, you know, I told her we were talking about healthcare. She said, how are you going to pay for it? And I said, well, for starters, by not building that anti-missile system we're building in Alaska that doesn't work and it's failed all of its tests. She said, we're building that? And I said, yeah, we started under George W. in his first term. And yeah, billions of dollars are going to that. We could pay for healthcare with. At least the healthcare would probably work. And uh, so I met, I went to DC and I met with Rahm Emanuel and, and he said, what's the matter with Judy? And I said, she doesn't know we're building an anti-missile system in Alaska, you know, among other things. And he said, well, just try not to have a primary. And I said, well, I'm happy to not have a primary if everybody else drops out of the primary. <laughs> but, but if I run, I'm not running to lose. You know, I mean, I, I learned to ski. I become instructor of the year. I, I you know, write songs. I, write good songs that become hits. I, I, I don't like not doing things right. And I said, I'm just going to really, and he said, okay, well, if you can raise 50 grand by January 1 of uh, 2006, this was October 20, 2005, when I was talking to him, he said, if you can raise 50 grand by the first of the year, I'll take you seriously. So I go home and I start trying to raise money. And, uh, you know, they say you have to, um, Start with your own Rolodex or your own phone book, your own, you know, contacts. Now it would be in my phone. 
because if you can't ask family and friends to give you money, who are you going to get to do it? You know, you, uh, you have to convince them to practice and be able to convince other people. So I did that and, and you know, started started raising money, but was having a, a tough go of it. Uh, and on December 31st, New Year's Eve, 2005, a couple hours before Ram's deadline, I had uh, $35,000 raised. And I went on to Act Blue, and they had at the time, it was like a $2,000 limit of money. It was the, the, uh, uh, the campaign law at the time was, I think you were limited to $2,100 for both the primary and the general election put together. And so I, uh, I got them to lift the, the computer uh, cap on that because I was donating to myself. I could go over that limit. And I put $15,000 donation to myself on my American Express card at 10 o'clock in the evening. So when Ron came in the office in January, first day, he would see I got the 50 grand. <laughs> and I still had a hard time. And um, I got a really good fundraiser after that who helped me a lot. But we were still kind of struggling. And things didn't clear up until Jackson Brown called. Uh, you know, I had told my friends that I was going to do this. And 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 uh, late, late May, I get a call from Jackson. He says, how's it going? And I said, uh, honestly, I don't know if I can do this. I've, I've already got to the point where I've written a speech to withdraw from the race. I'm thinking I might have to do that because I can't. And I told this to a couple of people. I told it to Congressman Recinci, rest his soul. He was kind of my mentor in all this political stuff. And, uh, and, I, and I told uh, Jackson this, and he said, what can I do? And I said, I don't know. Uh, he said, are there any venues I could come in and do a fundraiser for you? And I said, we've been thinking about doing some fundraisers in converted barns. There's a number of people I've offered. Do they have a barn that, you know, has been converted to have a wooden floor now and it's not, it's not straw on, wood, on mud, you know? So, and he said, well, uh, I got the weekend of, I think it was June 15th and 16th. Or so I forget what the dates were in June of 2006. And uh, I'm going to come there for two days, set up whatever you can set up. And we set up four barn concerts and uh, we sold the tickets for as much as we could get for them. And, uh, and they sold out and uh, Jackson and Pete Seeger came and we had a kind of in the round, except it was in a line. It was Dar Williams and, and Jackson and John Poussette Dart and Pete and me and, you know, and a couple hundred people in each barn. And uh, and the first one, we're, we're in Orange County in a, in a barn somewhere in, in Warwick, New York or something. And we finish and uh, take a bow after everybody's played their songs. And, and the people are standing up and cheering. And somebody in the back goes, take it easy. <laughs> and, and Jackson says, how much? And the guy says, what's the max? And one of my staff goes, $2,100. The guy says, I'm passing a check up and he writes a check for $2,100. So Jackson goes, I'm running down the road, trying to loosen my load. And everybody's singing along and the check gets passed up. 
And then somebody else goes, the pretender. And Jackson says, how much? And they say, how about 1500 And they pass a check up and he sings that. And everybody sings along and stands up and cheers. He's auctioning songs off. And that happened for like four shows in two days. And I had like a couple hundred grand in a weekend. And all of a sudden, people started giving me money. Because people won't give money if they don't think you can raise money. It's really the chicken and the egg. You, you have to have a demonstrable ability to raise money or the people with the really big bucks won't open up their checkbook. And Jackson opened the door. And that's just an amazing thing. I just, I would never could have done it. Uh, you know, and that's, you know, little help my friends. It's true in life of so many things you really need to have people you can count on. And Jackson and Bonnie and, you know, Graham Nash and David Crosby and and James, and, you know, uh, other people just uh, came through. And uh, and so that's that's really what made it possible. You know, I said I didn't have Exxon and Mobile, but I had Jackson and Bonnie. <laughs> and it's an amazing thing. Which are more powerful. They touch your soul and hearts. Okay, so you get elected. You're uh, in there for two terms. A, what's the learning curve? And what do you learn there? In terms of the process, I mean, since you've been there, we get these bozos. So, what's it like being in the belly of the beast? Well, they call it drinking from a fire hose. I mean, campaigning is the easiest thing. I think Donald Trump found that out. You know, if you're used to being on stage, which I was and which he was, but used to being on camera, you know, it's like it doesn't bother me to have to improvise. I'm used to being heckled. I've played bars where people threw tomatoes at the stage or beer bottles at the stage, and I know how to dodge them. So, Standing up and debating somebody doesn't bother me. Uh, but once I won, you had like an incredible volume of stuff to learn in about, you know, well, two months. You know, it was, the election was November 2nd, I think, and, and I got sworn in on January 2nd. So, uh, you know, and then you learn from your staff. Each, each member of Congress is only good as their staff. And I was fortunate enough to get a chief of staff who had worked as the New York State uh, office coordinator for Chuck Schumer, uh, Senator Schumer. And uh, and she uh, moved to Washington and ran my Washington office for a couple of years. And I had a, uh, uh, she found, she helped me to find, we had resumes submitted. Everybody who gets elected to Congress have like an avalanche of resumes from young people, mostly, a lot of them fresh out of college, who want a job somewhere in, in, in government. And they start out as interns, and they get a little experience, and then they get to be paid staffers. And so I had a really wonderful staff, and and uh, in particular, uh, my legislative directors were really good. And also, uh, <clears throat> I had a woman who worked on Veterans Affairs for me, who was just had the Midas touch. She knew when to stamp on somebody's desk at the VA and when to sweet talk them. And she got mountains moved at the VA and uh, Speaker Pelosi, when her first time around as Speaker, uh, asked me to chair a subcommittee on veterans' disabilities, which was under the full Veterans Affairs Committee. And that's really where I did my probably my most important work. I mean, yes, I contributed to the Affordable Care Act and I voted for it. Yes, I worked on the Waxman-Markey environment and climate, you know, and energy bill. But uh, the 
Veterans Claims Modernization Act of 2008, which I was the prime author of, came out of my subcommittee, uh, passed unanimously in the House and the Senate. Every Republican and every, de- every Democrat voted yes. And President George W. Bush signed it into law and called it good government. And I was like, wow, blow me over with a feather because I kind of ran against George W. And But the fact is there is common ground and there are things that make sense. And you just have to be able to cut through the noise and find a way to talk to people about them and disarm them. It's, uh, you know, it's something that I I wish more people were able to do now, although I would say that Joe Biden seems to be doing pretty well with it. Okay, you're elected. Classic question. Do you do what is right in your heart or do you worry about what you're, con- you obviously worry about both, but when they're not in the same place, do you do what's right in your heart or do you do what your constituents want? I believe you do what's right in your heart. And uh, most of the time it's the same thing because people elected me because I told them what I would do if I got in. So most of the time, my constituents, most of them agreed with me. Um, example of where it was not the case was uh, the the bailout of GM and Chrysler and the banks uh, and the Great Recession when, uh, yeah, Nancy Pelosi called an emergency caucus. We were getting ready to leave for a weekend, at the, you know, late. Uh, was it, it was after President Obama had won the election, I, I believe, if I recall correctly, and uh, but George W. Bush was still president. So it was uh, the end of 2007. And um, she said that she had gotten a call from uh, Larry Summers and, no, it wasn't Larry Summers. It was, it was, um, it was George W.'s uh, uh, Paul Volcker and it was like the head of the Fed and the Treasury Secretary. And saying that they need to have an immediate meeting with her about urgently needed legislation. And she said, well, let's have a meeting on Monday where we're sending everybody home for the weekend and and then we'll talk about it. Monday, she said, they said to her, uh, Madam Speaker, we may not have an economy by Monday. And, and she said, uh, come over now. And they came over and they told her what was going on in terms of the collapse of the banks and Lehman Brothers going under and how the rest, there was like a, a bunch of dominoes getting ready to fall and GM and Chrysler getting ready to go bankrupt. And, and, uh, so we stayed through the weekend and everybody in the house stayed through the weekend and we pushed, put together this, what started as a two page bill that the treasury and the fed brought to Nancy became like a hundred pages with various caveats and all the loans being paid back, you know, all GM and Chrysler and the banks, everybody paid back their loans with interest to the treasury. But still, it was not something that a lot of people wanted to do. People, you know, people don't feel that great about uh, about banks making gazillions of dollars uh, when times are good and charging everybody an arm and a leg, and and not paying enough interest, and uh, and charging too much interest, and then all of a sudden coming with their hand out when things are bad, and uh, and people felt kind of the same way about GM and and Chrysler. Ford didn't ask for bailout. GM and Chrysler did. And so we wound up um, putting those things together, and I voted for them. But my friend, Congressman Marie Senchi from Ulster County, New York, he um, he was against it. He voted no on both of those bills. And I said, why? And he said, because if we spend all these billions of dollars to bail out the banks and bail out 
GM and Chrysler, we will have no money left for healthcare. And I said, yeah, but I didn't come here to watch a train wreck. You know, and the way it's explained to me, if the banks go down, nobody's credit card will work or debit card will work. The banks will close the lobby because you won't be able to make withdrawals. What's the average person going to do? You know, everybody's going to, if we could say, let the bankers go to hell in a handbasket, that's, people might agree with that. But if everybody's going to hell in a handbasket with them, that's not what I came here for. And so, you know, I had people yelling at me in my district. I had a, a restaurant owner in Port Jervis all the way up by the Delaware River in the western part of my district saying to me, where's my bailout? How could you vote to bail them out? I've had this restaurant my whole life and struggled in that. Where's my bailout? You know, and people were upset. But I think they would have been as much or more upset if the other thing had happened. I, so in that case, I had to do what was my conscience was telling me to do. Okay. So you've had hit records, ski instructor of the year, elected to Congress, Muse. What are you most proud of? Oh, boy. <laughs> Chuck Plotkin said when uh, Johanna and I had our daughter, uh, now you can say you really produced something. <laughs> and and I guess I'm really most proud of my daughter and my granddaughter. But uh, but I think, you know, writing songs that people sing on the other side of the world in other languages, that, that you know, Johanna thought that when we toured uh, Japan and uh, a whole audience would be singing along phonetically to every song. Some of them they understood, I think, probably, or some, you know, a lot of the people, in, especially in cities like Tokyo, uh, understand English as well, but as singing it phonetically. But but that really means you've reached beyond your, your family and your friends. <laughs> There's no relation between me, at least, uh, and, uh, and these audiences in Japan. So that's incredibly gratifying. Okay, this has been wonderful. I know you have to hit the road imminently. So I'm going to let you go. John, thanks so much for doing this. You're welcome, Bob. Thanks for asking me. And uh, I'll, I will uh, look forward to talking. Maybe we just finished our first Orleans Christmas album. And it'll be out in October. Uh, maybe Lance, my partner, Lance Hoppin, and I can speak to you about that if you have time in the fall. Well, we'll see what happens. Uh, we'll certainly look for you on the road. Thanks, Bob. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsex. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then mm-hmm. a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Carol G. Juan Gabriel. Christina Aguilera. What do these three have in common? You mean apart from impeccable style, chart-topping canciones, and drama? Facts, yes, all of the above are correct. But most importantly, they're some of the biggest Latin icons in the world. And they're just a few of the game-changing Latin stars we're covering in Becoming an Icon Season 2. Listen to Becoming an Icon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.